Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Freedom. That is a line from a movie. If I were to say it, As it was said in the movie, you would all recognize it, but I would also hurt your ears uh, because that is the cry of William Wallace in the movie Braveheart. Uh, He is fighting for freedom from the British as a Scotsman. Uh, If you haven't seen it, don't worry. It's pretty much just the Patriot on a different continent. Um, They're mostly the same movie, just with different accents and different settings. I bring this up because freedom is such a culturally significant idea to us today. So many things uh, we use freedom to modify. It's an adjective that we stick on to so many things. I mean, just think about it. You have the Freedom Caucus in Washington. There have been rallies at USF St. Petersburg ongoing for the past few weeks for academic freedom. We want freedom of expression, freedom of the press, free to be who we want to be. There, there are no shortage of things that we want to be free of or that we want for free. But our cultural idea of freedom is not quite the same thing as the way the word is used in the Bible. In our minds, freedom has become for us the sense of radical autonomy. Radical autonomy. I get to choose whatever I want. Freedom is, for me, self-determination. And it has become a blessing and a burden as we have to forge and create our own identities. I can choose who I want to be. And anyone who tries to tell me anything other than that is cutting in on my freedom. And so we feel this tension. While we are free to forge our own identity, we have never been less happy. Uh, Professor at New York University, Jonathan Haidt, uh, published an article this week dealing with the rise of self-hatred, of self-loathing. And the the article had a lot to say, um, but one of the things that he pointed to, one of the facts that he pointed out is the rise of language and technology that has allowed us to create and craft and express our own identity in freedom has been the root cause of the rise of unhappiness. We can pick who we want to be just about as easily as we all picked a shirt to wear this morning. But with all this self-determination, all this freedom of identity, we're less content than we were even just 10 years ago. And that's not anecdotal. Uh, That is measurable. Our freedom has in some ways become for us a curse and a chain. And so we come to the book of Galatians as we've been walking through it. And Paul has been talking throughout this book about freedom. And we're bringing all of our own cultural assumptions into that word. We just do it out of habit, do it out of our default way of thinking. But is that what Paul is getting at? I think you know that I'm going to answer that with a no. Freedom is not the same thing for Paul as our radical self-determination, our radical uh, 
willingness to just choose whatever we want. And so we have to be careful because Paul's getting at something different. Freedom isn't radical autonomy or self-determination. True Christian freedom is living the identity that God created us to be and has given to us. It's not something we determine or achieve. It is something we receive. And when we begin to live out of that, we get around this trap of unhappiness because we get experience the joy that we were created to live in. And so as we read this morning about freedom, that's what I want you to be listening for. How is Paul presenting us a different way of living? And so if you are able, I invite you to stand. I'm going to be reading the first 12 verses of Galatians chapter 5. If you have a Bible, you can read along with me. If not, they'll be on the screen behind me. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens up the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So Paul begins this chapter by summarizing everything that he has told us in chapters three and four by sort of putting it into a slogan. It is for freedom that we have been set Free. The work of Christ has set us on a radically different path than what the false teachers had mapped out. The false teachers had come in and said, if you want to be a real Christian, if you want to be serious about your faith, if you want to be genuine, the way that you can do that is by going back and keeping all of the Old Testament law. You go back and you add all of the things that had come before, all of the dietary laws, all of that stuff. You add that to your Christianity and then you'll be good to go. But what he, Paul says is when they tell you that, what they're trying to do is get you to go back to Egypt. They're trying to get you to put a yoke of slavery on themselves. And he says, listen, church, this is not the way it ought to be. We are not here to just be a religious rule-keeping club. Paul says, if you accept this, if you begin to go down this path and say, okay, yes, in order to be a good Christian, I need to follow the law. Paul says, be warned. It's not just one or two laws that you have to follow. It's every single one of them. 
And if you've been following along in our daily prayer project for the past few weeks, we've been reading through Deuteronomy and there's a lot of laws in there. I'm not gonna go down the rabbit hole of all of the laws, but there's one that I particularly like that I wanted to point out from this week's reading, which is you should set aside a proportional amount of your income that you could spend on sumptuous food and wine and throw a party for everybody around you. You should set aside money to buy the best steaks and the best whiskey and then throw a party every year. Amen? We want to follow, I want to follow that law. But then you get into all the details about whether or not you can wear clothing that has two different types of fabrics in it. That's out. You get into the law where bacon's out. You get into the law of clean and unclean. So many of these things, and all of a sudden, if you're trying to prove your Christianity based on how well you can keep the rules, the list of rules will never end. And just like we have seen over the past few weeks, anytime we elevate any rules, whether it's the laws of the Old Testament or our own set of of sort of pet things that we want everybody to do, when we begin to make those the boundary markers of Christianity, we are following in the path of the false teachers. When we make rule-keeping, attendance records, giving receipts, the mark of who is or is not a good Christian, we become just like the false teachers. And before you let yourself off the hook, Before you go, yes, yes, Justin, I'm glad I'm not like those false teachers. Before you go there, let me give you a couple of signs that you might be submitting to the yoke of the law. Give you a couple characteristics and see if we find ourselves in any of these. Touchiness, insecurity, pride, discouragement, and weariness from always keeping up. Whenever we organize our life around rule keeping, we constantly have to look over our shoulder to see if anyone is watching all the ways we do and do not keep those rules. And if you're touchy because you're worried about other people noticing, if you're weary because you feel like you have to keep the mask of rule keeping up at all times, it's because you may have fallen back into this yoke. Because trying to keep up with all of the demands of rule following as a means to be justified is tiring and burdensome. That's why Paul says it's a yoke. It is slavery. It is not the way we were meant to be. But in our day and age, there is an equal and opposite reaction that can become a yoke as well. Some of us hear this and go, yes, yes. Oh, that's he's talking about legalist and I don't like legalist. That's bad. Legalism is bad. And so the way that we respond is by throwing out all ideas of rule keeping. We say that doesn't determine our status with God, and we're right. But instead of taking on the yoke of Jesus, we decide that we're going to self-determine our identity. We have to perform our identity, projecting it out onto who we want to be in the world through our posts, our comments, our likes. We begin to believe that we're able to make ourselves into who we ought to be. And so any whim of emotion becomes the basis of how we express and present ourselves to the world around us. We say, rules be damned, I'm the captain of my ship, I'm the master of my domain. And we go in the opposite direction, 
but this leads to misery as well. As we talked about when I mentioned that Jonathan Haidt article, all of our performative identity making is a treadmill where we fake it until enough people think that we have made it and it's killing us. But Paul is presenting to us something different, another way, another way that is not the yoke of legalism, that is not the yoke of self-determination. Rather, Christ has made an identity for us. Through his death and resurrection, he has adopted us as the sons and daughters of God. He has freed us from all of the obligations of the law. He has performed the obedience that we need. He has taken the punishment for our sins and our broken failures. And so now we are free to live by that identity. We don't have to go back to the law in order to perform, to measure up. And we don't have to create and project what we want to be. Christian identity can never be achieved through law-keeping or through freedom performances. It is something that we receive and it is something that we rest in. And that's why Paul tells us, stand firm. Don't go back to this yoke. Don't go back to effort and achievement. Jesus paid it all. He sums up his theological argument by reminding us that Jesus did the hard work. And our role is to accept this by faith. Our role is to bask in the truth, the goodness, the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. We are free to wonder at the great love that has been shown to us in the moment of our deepest regret. Uh, Pastor John Stott uh, put it this way, and I thought this was a really good. True freedom is freedom from my silly little self in order to live responsibly in love for God or others. And so Paul reminds us of how futile it is when we accept law-keeping and rule-following as a way to determine who we are. And so he, he starts verse 2 then with something that all of us as parents, if you have parents, if you are a parent, this is something that you probably have developed. I don't know what it is in your family, but when I say the words, the combination of words, hey guys, it's normally because something has gone off the rails. Normally those words are punctuated differently. Like perhaps it's, hey guys, or maybe it's, hey guys, G guys. Right. This is, I have three sons, if you don't know. And, and it's sort of this, this word of, would you please pay attention to me? Might normally have to do with them using our couch as a jungle gym. Um, it might have to do with them tuning the world out with noise-canceling headphones. It could be a number of things. But hey, guys, is my normal way of getting their attention. Paul says, look, right? Look, listen, Listen, pay attention, you guys. If you submit yourself to circumcision, Christ is of no benefit to you. That's, that, that's strong language. That's not the strongest language Paul's going to use. We'll get to that because it's going to get wild, you guys. Um, but before we even get there, Paul says, listen, if you are trying to keep the law, if you are trying to make the status of your relationship with God based on how well you are following the rules, Christ doesn't matter to you. Christian church, 
If you are trying to make your status with God based on how well you keep any set of rules, whether it's rules from the Old Testament, rules from the church you grew up in, rules that you particularly have cherry-picked from, if you try to make that the basis of your status with God, Jesus doesn't matter. That's a pretty big deal. If you go back to the way of thinking that says, I need to follow the rules, then Jesus is completely useless to you. Because Paul says, if you're going to follow the law, you have to follow every jot and tittle, and you can't do that. You can't do that. And so he, he says, listen, listen, Jesus is of no benefit to you if you can't, if you keep following the rules. And that's the whole point. You don't have to keep all of these rules. You don't have to follow all of these laws. Because our justification, our, our status with God is wholly won by Jesus himself. He has already done the work. He has already put in the effort so that we don't have to. And when we rest in him, the work of Jesus becomes a benefit to us. It becomes the way that we are accepted before God. But when we try to add something to that, we look at Jesus, we look at the cross and go, well, that's good, but I think I could help that out. I think I could move that ball down the field. I think that I could add to what Jesus has done. Now, most of you who are here, who have been here, who are, you know, city church every week, died in the wool, I'm pretty sure not a one of you would ever say out loud, I could add to the work of Jesus. I know you. You're, you're, you're better than that. Or at least you know better than to say that out loud. But in effect, when we try to prove our worth and value to God and to the Christian community through our rule following, we are saying, I think I could add to what Jesus has done. I think I could, I think I could improve on that. I think I could get him to do a little bit better. And Paul says, this is not the way it works. Our only hope is in the righteousness that is to come. And this hope isn't the sort of wishy-washy hope that you and I kind of, the way that we use hope. Like, like I hope I see snow in the mountains this week, right? That's my wish. That's what I desire. I really hope it comes true. But for Paul, hope is something different. Hope is the settled belief that because of the resurrection of Jesus, the future is going to be different than the past. And that the present is starting to work itself into the future. That in this moment, because of the resurrection of Jesus, my justification with God is fully won and fully guaranteed. It's not a matter of if, it is solely a matter of when. And I can't add anything to it because it has already been done on my behalf. It has already started. The resurrection of Jesus is just step one in God's complete remaking of the cosmos. All that global, ecological, theological change can't come about by my individual doing. It can't come about because of our corporate doing. It's only going to come about because of Jesus and his power through his resurrection. And so we hope in him, not as a cross your fingers, maybe it'll happen. No, we rest in hope 
because the work has already been fulfilled. And Paul says that's the only thing that really matters, faith working through love. Now, if we read this, we might accidentally misread it when we read through that the first time. We might think, ah, yes, faith working through love. That's what we're supposed to be about as Christians, right? Faith working through love. But if we're not careful, we can get it swapped up because if we think that it's our effort that changes things, if, if that comes to your mind, that's reasonable. But what have I just been saying? That's not what Paul's saying here. Because for Paul, what he's saying is, this is the love that God has for you that creates change in you. Our faith is generated and created by his love for us. Christianity, redemption are the work of God from start to finish. And so Paul begins to tease out then, how does this work? Why does this matter in our lives? The whole point of freedom is to see Christ formed in us. The whole point is to see Jesus mold us into who he has made us to be. And the false teachers are hindering this from happening. Paul actually uses a sports analogy here. So it doesn't count against my sports analogy uh, quota because Paul does it, not me. I'm just explaining to you what Paul is saying. Because races uh, in the time in the ancient Near East didn't happen like we imagine them. When we think of track and field, we think of the oval track and everybody's kind of running around a certain number of laps around the circle. Well, in this time, the sort of Roman races would be, okay, everybody starts at this line and you're going to run to that pole and you're going to touch that pole and then you're going to run back. So the start line is the finish line. You just go touch the pole and then you come back. First one back wins. And so what Paul says when he says they're hindering them, he says that they're cutting them off that you are jumping in front of, front of somebody and tripping them up. That's what the false teachers are doing. Paul says, who has hindered you? Who has tripped you up and cut you off from the good news of the gospel? All of the law keeping is nothing but passing interference for the gospel. It's nothing but an interruption of what should be happening. To put it another way, Last week, we all had to deal with the traffic from the Grand Prix. You had, to, you had to hear for the weeks leading up to it, hey, parking's different for church. You know, use this garage, not that garage. Maybe get here a little early. If you live anywhere here near downtown over the course of the week, you heard the sort of low-key buzzing that comes from the city during that week. Our lives were interrupted. But then the race itself was interrupted because somebody tried to pass on the first lap, caused a five-car pileup, put the race under caution and stop the cars for like 30 minutes in the first lap. Paul says that's what happens when we try to achieve our identity. It's a car wreck or better yet a train wreck. We don't have to completely forge who we are. No, Jesus has given it to us. And so being a good pastor, Paul shifts. He says, now that I've given a sports analogy, let me do a cooking one. I like you, Paul. I'm feeling that. And he says, a little bit of leaven leavens up the whole lump. A little bit of sourdough makes your whole loaf of bread a sourdough loaf. Some of you guys remember three years ago this month when all of a sudden, all of us got, a lot of you, I didn't do it, not me. You guys got into sourdough. And everybody was talking about their starter 
and taking pictures of their starter and, and giving their friends some of their starter. And you put a little bit of that dough stuff. I, I've watched the Great British Baking Show, but I will not attempt to tell you what happens with leaven. It makes bread bigger. The same is true. Every little bit of self-reliance that we try to bring to the table of our faith is going to affect our whole faith. Jesus paid it all. And Paul's confident, Paul's confident that the Galatians are going to be able to see that and we're going to be able to see it. But Paul calls down some pretty, some pretty serious judgment on the false teachers. First, he says that whoever is tripping you up, whoever is trying to distract you from the radical free grace of Jesus will bear the penalty for it themselves. They're going to have to pay for this because that's what the law makes us do. Whenever we try to be justified by the law, we have to bear the penalty of the law. And so Paul says basically about these false teachers, they're going to get what they have coming. They're going to be judged by the law that they're trying to judge everyone else by. And then Paul sort of makes the gruesome point there in verse 12. If you are relying on circumcision to be your justification before God, I wish you would use the knife a little more. He wishes that they would make themselves eunuchs. And, and our translations and myself are trying to be a little bit delicate, but Paul is using violent and bloody language here for what he wishes these false teachers would do. But here's the thing. Jesus has already paid the penalty for us. We don't have to bear the penalty. Jesus has already been cut off from the people of Israel and the land of the living for us. He took it on himself on the cross. He accomplished all that we need. And so our call is not to do this morning, is to rest, to rest in him, to see him formed in our lives through meditating on how radically free his grace is. Let's not be foolish. Let's not be foolish enough to think that any of our accomplishments, any of our achievements can add anything to it. We're free to just love him and receive his love for us, to take his yoke on us, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And so City Church, this morning, let us leave beside all of the ways that we have to forge and achieve. Let's leave aside all of the ways that we try to prove our status before God. And let's just rest in him. Let us love and sing and wonder at what he has fully done for us. Let's pray.